Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey guys, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 189 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here in Chiang Mai with Chris Cage. Hey guys, how's it going? Dude, I'm excited to finally have you on the show. Thanks, man. Excited to be here. Yeah, so... Chris was scheduled to be one of the speakers at the Nomad Summit in 2018, but he had a bit of a family emergency. He had to fly back um, unexpectedly, but he's back in Chiang Mai, ready to share his story. Ready to share. So Chris is actually really interesting. Uh, I actually first heard about about you on the Joe Rogan experience. I wonder how many people reached out to you after that saying, hey, bro, I, I heard you on Joe Rogan. I think I had several thousand Facebook friend requests. Really? Yeah. So the fact that I'm actually one of your friends on Facebook, Sheffield Special? Yeah, yeah, VIP. Okay. So if people don't know who you are yet, you know, even though you are world famous now with millions of downloads, <laughs> let's actually kind of go into the backstory a bit. Where sure. are you from originally? Georgia. I grew up in Peachtree City, Georgia. Okay, so that's near Russia, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the country, Georgia. Uh, it's like an hour, it's hour south of Atlanta, suburbia. Okay, so just normal kid. Normal kid. Growing up. Big yep. dreams, big hopes, yep. big ambitions. And you did a bunch of cool stuff, and now you're living in Chiang Mai. Yep. Now I'm in Chiang Mai. End of story. End of podcast. Story. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, seriously, like, you're probably, so uh, you're, you're best known for your company, which is greenbelly.co, which is, as Joe Rogan talked about on, on the podcast, is this awesome meal replacement bar that you, did you develop the idea on it? about it while you're hiking the Appalachian, Appalachian Trail? Yep, yep. So I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Peachtree City and went to college in Birmingham, Alabama. Graduated with an accounting degree and started working for a um, yeah a, a big corporate corporate company in Birmingham. Um, I, definitely, I definitely didn't dis- dislike the company. It was more the fact that I knew I wanted to hike the Appalachian Trail, which I, and I grew up hiking a lot in Georgia and, and Boy Scouts. Uh, so I quit, quit the job. I uh, had a little bit of money saved two years after um, college, after working in that job, and decided to uh, do some travel. Went to Asia for a bit and also went to New Zealand. I had bought a bicycle off Craigslist and shipped it to New Zealand. And Did they and, not sell bicycles in New Zealand? I, frankly, I just didn't know... I didn't know enough about what what kind of stuff they would have. Uh, the stuff I had seen online was more kind of like, um, you know, rent our bike for a week kind of thing. I knew that I wanted to have this thing for several months, and there's some specific kind of uh, yeah things about the bike I wanted. I wanted touring racks. I wanted a steel frame. Um, so I ended up buying that on Craigslist, my own one in the states, and shipping it there. Yeah, nothing is New Zealand's expensive. I think it was cheaper for me to get a a, a used Trek frame or steel frame bike in the states shipped in new zealand than it ever would have been to get something in new zealand and the selection in new zealand was a lot less mm. how much did it cost you to actually ship that bike to new zealand not that much i think it was maybe like a 100 bucks that's actually not that bad no it's I, not I, at all i kind of expected that to be a lot more um so yeah i did the i did new zealand for three months and i was yeah cycle touring that's what they call it bicycle touring bike packing that word has um, become more commonly associated with that but yeah, just cycling down the length of the country, did that for yeah three months, and then came back to the United States to hike the Appalachian Trail for six months. And all right, so I want everybody to think about the longest hike you guys have been on. You know, maybe <laughs> two hours, <laughs> four hours. You know, if anyone's done an overnight hike, you know it's pretty crazy. It's pretty intense. So the Appalachian Appalachian Trail, which I can't even pronounce, yet alone hike. <laughs> takes six months to complete this is true that's insane yeah uh, it's six months so it goes from excuse me georgia to maine i think it goes through about 13 states on the east coast it's about 2200 miles and yeah i think i mean if you're on the faster end you might do it in like five months you know i think the average is about six months though so i spent six months hiking that place trail. What's the slowest anyone's ever done it <laughs> i don't know Definitely, definitely. All right. So, yeah. To rephrase that, the slowest that somebody's done a through hike. A through hike is a term for anybody who's done the trail basically in one in one run. You know, you don't get off trail for 
you know you don't hike for a month or two and then get off trail for a year and then come back and hike a couple months it's generally you do it in one run and that one run is kind of defined by doing it within one year so i know plenty of people that that have taken eight plus months to do it and um, they'll be a slow hiker or they'll take a couple extra days in town to wash up enjoy that r&r but I, I'd probably say like eight or nine months would be the, on the real slow end. That would definitely be me. I, I would <laughs> I would do a couple of days of hiking, find a little town, you know, book an Airbnb, post up, chill out, do some co working, maybe <laughs> blog a bit, because some videos. Be like, all right, guys, I'm I'm ready for this again. Um. So yeah, I did the Appalachian Trail and uh, between New Zealand and the Appalachian Trail, both of those. Uh, New Zealand, I was cycling a lot. So I was cycling like 100 miles a day. That would be like pretty, that would be pretty intense. Maybe, you know, 50 miles a day on average. And um, similarly on that place in Trail, I was, instead of biking, I was hiking all day. And on both of those, I had huge uh, loads of gear, you know, on my back um, or in New Zealand on my bike. Uh, but in both cases, I was burning a ton of calories. And in both cases, I was really far away from what we call resupplies, which would be, you know, and, and basically a town, you know, that would have places to stock, you know, stock up on supplies. So the the priority of having dense nutrition and, you know, shelf stable nutrition became um, huge. You know, uh, we were basically drinking olive oil and chomping down peanut butter, uh, you know, anything that was loaded in fats, calories. It's kind of like the, the the opposite diet of what anybody in town would want to eat. You know, we were going high sugar, high calorie, high fat, high sodium, all those things just to try to make sure that we were getting enough um, nutrition. Just so you can keep going and, and get to that next town. Absolutely. So if you're if you were five if you were five days in between a town, you've really and you're burning five thousand calories a day, you've really got to load up a ton a ton of food and nutrition. And when you're carrying all that on your back. You say, okay, well, that nutrition's also got to be really lightweight. So, uh, and, and it should probably taste better than olive oil. Right, and tastes better than olive oil. Uh, so, you know, the kind of the options out there, you know, a lot of energy bars, energy bars, you know, cap around uh, 200 calories, 250 calories, even weightlifting bars, you know, cap around 400 calories. Um, the other stuff on the market's like those dehydrated meals, which are like add hot water, freeze dried, you know, you add hot water and then kind of zip them up and wait um, 10 minutes for them to cook. So those were two common options other than kind of the DIY stuff, which is drinking olive oil, peanut butter, that kind yeah. of thing. So I guess you can't – I mean you can bring a sandwich for the first day, but then <laughs> by day four or five, that's moldy. It's, it's smashed. It's, it's destroyed. It's, yeah, it's destroyed. Um, and I think a lot of people listening to this probably can't even really fathom you know, what, what that's like because I've been hiking. I've been camping, but – I'm also, you know, within a few hours from my car, you know, I can just keep my stuff or, you know, a Denny's. <laughs> so the idea of, you know, even, you know, a two, three day hike where I have to bring all my food, I would just bring, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I'll bring some eggs, maybe I'll bring some, you know, some bread, some beef jerky and white bread. And, you know, that's kind of the extent of it. But in your situation, that's not possible. Like you actually have to have some kind of special lightweight cell you know like stable food that won't won't go bad in your backpack sure okay yeah so that that kind of gives you a little frame of reference of what you know what a lot of the hikers were dealing with out there and you know building off of what the options were out there and kind of saying okay uh there could be an opportunity to make something really cool here and i i knew that you know so i came from the accounting background um I knew I didn't really want to go back to that route, and I kind of had this idea to develop this kind of ultimate meal uh, for hikers, endurance athletes, that kind of thing. So yeah, after the Appalachian Trail, uh, I had a little bit of savings still left over from being an accountant, and I decided to um, yeah get to work on this meal idea I had, and I ended up going and staying uh, with my parents. I lived at home for almost almost a year, almost a year, really doing um i had no entrepreneurial experience so this was going from being a backpacker and an accountant to trying to navigate the entrepreneurial space which was yeah that's you know that was that was you know difficult in itself yeah but that's really cool because i think i mean the fact that you were willing to sacrifice you know your own comfort you know to move back home with your parents to do something that you know you weren't really comfortable doing you know not just hiking the trail but then also, you know, trying to launch this business, that in itself is, you know, kind of the, the roots of a good entrepreneur. 
And on top of that, you actually develop a product that not only do you know something about, but you also saw a need in the market, something that would help you, people like you, your friends, and assuming that if there's someone like you that would benefit from it, then many other people would as well. Yeah, and that's and that yeah, that was a big assumption going on that, you know, okay, I see a need, hopefully some other people will see a need. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, you also touch on going back home and kind of viewing that as risky and um, kind of ballsy saying, okay, hey, let's go back and move in with the parents and take a stab at this business. Yeah, um, what did your parents think about that? <laughs> I think they, you know, I think most Americans, or at least, or I'm not going to stab at Americans, but definitely at least my my family, I should say, is pretty excited and respect the kind of entrepreneur. I think they thought it was kind of a cool idea. Obviously, they knew it was going to be a long road, high probability of failure, blah, 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 blah. But in general, I think they thought it was a pretty cool idea that I was going to take a stab at this. I think that actually is a very American thing. Yeah. I think in a lot of other cultures, the parents were like, get a job, you know, <laughs> like go go do something. But I mean, how did they feel about you wanting to hike the the AT? That, that was probably more back to the conventional wisdom that you just touched on. My dad definitely had a lot of fear of... Okay, you've gone to college. You've worked so hard to get this accounting thing set up. You've got a job. Um, why, you know, why would you? Why are you walking away from this? I think he thought it was kind of, um, I don't know, maybe kind of a childish, childish thing to do. Um, so yeah, he he definitely had a hard time with it. I think mom, yeah, it was both both of them just had some fear, kind of like, what is my son going to go back to if he quits his job and you know leaves the workforce for this this long amount of time? Yeah, I think that's a big fear with with a lot of people coming out of college. I mean, that's why we don't really have gap years in the U.S. Yeah. Everywhere else in the world, people talk about, you know, taking a gap year around Europe or to Australia. And as an American, I'm like, you don't do that. I'm like, what's a gap year? <laughs> right. And I, I actually specifically remember somebody mentioning something about taking a year or two off between, you know, after college and working or between high school and college. And just nobody would do it because there's too many downsides of it you know if you if you take a year between high school and college you might not be able to get into the college it's, you want it's viewed as risky yeah. yeah and you know if after college you know you take a year off not only do you have student debt that you have to start paying but also companies will look at you like what what did you, what did you do for this year and you know you can look be seen as unreliable or it just just nobody does it mm -hmm. and i think that's the downside of of our society and our culture in the U.S., but the upside is we're really excited about things like business. entrepreneurship and business, and that's why I don't know if you know this, but Shark Tank is the most watched family show in the U.S. Wow, that's did crazy, not, right? Did not know that. Did not know that. Yes, yeah, so I'm trying to think. Where was I? So um, yeah, I moved back to them with the parents and started getting to work on the the meal idea, and yeah, did that on and off for. Where I say on and off, I mean, I was working full throttle, trying to get the product developed, trying to figure out what areas I did and did not know about, what areas I might need some help in. And um, yeah, really just grinding it out for a while. And then I think it took it took several months to get a product that I felt good about. Um, and then after that, it was just hitting market and trying to figure out how to get some sales. Okay. So did you start thinking about the product while you're on the trail itself, thinking like what would go in it or... Like, where did that kind of inspiration come? Was it afterwards where you're like, okay, I wish I would have had something with me? Or So I had eaten similar stuff. There was a product in New Zealand that had this kind of one-third of your daily nutrition concept. And I was eating a ton of that in uh, New Zealand. And then coming back to the States, it wasn't there. Um, so I wanted to kind of say, hey, I want this product in the States. And it wasn't there. So I started kind of building off of that idea of... Uh, a really, really dense nutrition, ready to eat meal um, in the United States. So that was kind of it. And I think I really started noticing um, by being on the Appalachian Trail and really that kind of high calorie burn and how much I really felt like there was a big market in the States to actually do something like that. I guess one question that I have is what's the difference between just eating like eight cliff bars? Yeah, that's a great question. The big thing is nutritional balance. So when you start thinking about the intent of a cliff bar and uh, I don't want to say cliff bar specifically, let's just say energy bars, if mm -hmm. we will, um, energy bars into kind of the, the intent is more of a snack and kind of a boost. Uh, no one's sitting there saying, okay, I have not had dinner. I'm going to go have an energy bar. So you think about that from a nutritional point of view, they're generally around 200 calories, maybe 220. You say, okay, well then why not just have three of these to get to my 660 calories? 
the rest of the nutritional profile is going to be out of whack. So you might have, um, you know, that one 220 calorie bar might have, you know, 40% of your sugar. It might have 50% of your fat. It might only have 1% of your fiber. Um, so if you think about it, if you triple those, you're not going to get a balanced nutritional profile. So that was kind of the concept of getting um, that balanced nutritional profile. So you know you're going to get enough fats. You know you're going to get enough sodium. You know you're going to get enough carbs down the label so you can kind of eat it as a meal so that's the first thing the nutritional profile and the second thing is structure um back to the intent of the the bar it's like you eat that bar and like it's a dense snack so i really wanted this to be fluffy so you could eat a larger quantity of it and and it not go down like a brick yeah i remember when i used to wrestle in high school i would eat uh power bars Mm, that was yeah that's the early days that was back (laughs) in the day and i remember my pre-match ritual was about an hour before i would have my wrestling match i would have a power bar and a banana yeah and i could not imagine eating more than one power bar (laughs) because they were so hard to get down yeah it's like taffy yeah it it did it tastes like taffy exactly and but it was perfect because it was like that quick spike of energy, lots of sugar. Yeah. It just it just felt like this rock in my stomach. Like, yeah, I'm gonna, I I I have what it takes now. <laughs> right. Time to be this guy. Yeah, but I definitely wouldn't want to eat that for a meal. I wouldn't yeah. have that for breakfast or or dinner or even lunch. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, then that was hitting market, and that was back in like 2000. What was that? Yeah, 2014. Actually, I had a product I felt good about. And okay, so yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of the so a lot of people listening to this are going to be you know entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs. You know, a lot of us are either digital nomads or we're used to creating products online. The idea of creating a physical food product for us sounds first insane, and then second, the fact that you're able to. I mean, the reason why I really wanted to have you on the show was because you're one of the first nomads I've met. You know, especially because you're li- you're living the nomad life. You're in Chiang Mai. You know, you haven't. You know pretty much an online business that you're not the one shipping these bars out anymore, right? The fact that you're able to do this with a physical foods business, that's something that, you know, is also like passion driven too. I think this is what a lot of, you know, either current digital nomads want to transition to or future digital nomads would love to get into. So it's kind of just to kind of break it down more. Like, was it you like in the kitchen, like mixing these ingredients or did you like have to you know, how, like, how did you even get started making that recipe? Yeah, that's a great point. I don't think I realized until getting into more of the digital um, nomad traveling group that um, how few people run a branded e-commerce physical product business. They're much more um, internet marketers, and um, running that kind of that physical presence in the states is um, it's definitely. Uh, um, not as common, but yeah. So getting getting it going, uh, I, I started. I literally started whipping stuff up in my mom's kitchen. Like kind of okay. Um, yeah, I, I was just hey, what sounds good together? You know, I quickly learned, man. I had no clue what I was doing. I was like, okay, I'm not a chef. I know nothing about this stuff. And it starts getting really complicated when you start thinking about okay, let's just whip up a few ingredients and you say, well, this stuff's falling apart, or you know, this is it's just too flaky. It's brittle. You, know, you have to think about the structure of it. That's a big one. Everything about shelf stability, making sure that like, you know, some type of nut or fruit is not reacting with some sort of oil, right? I think it's flavor. You got to make that thing taste good and getting that nutritional profile where I want it to be. So sort of like really quickly acknowledging this stuff is way over my head. So I, I decided to, you know, bring on a, a food scientist and contracted with somebody to uh, help get that formula where I wanted it to be. Uh, and yeah, so that, that was, I think that was a great early on decision is acknowledging, you know, an area that I, I was lacking in expertise and then, um, you know, hiring out for that. Very smart. So outsource the, <laughs> the, the parts that you're not an expert in. Absolutely. So, so how would somebody go about even finding somebody? Do you just go on like Upwork and type in food scientists? So, yeah, there were, there were two ways, uh, I went about it. One was just Googling around. I didn't, I didn't even, that, that, that term food scientist, I didn't even know about. I was looking for nutritionist, chef, you know, kind of those things. And then after some research on Google, I kind of learned that this is a food science type um, type of a gig. And so once that I got that term down, then it was starting to search around Google for, you know, food scientists, food science programs. Um, I, ended up, I ended up calling all sorts of, you know, a lot of universities in the States have food science programs. So getting on the phone with some of those guys, I mean, they, they're just in the know, you know, so start talking to them if they have any ideas. Um, that was one way. And the other way, yeah, I think... I think at that time, if you remember, Upwork used to be Elance. 
I think I'm, yeah, I think that was Elance at the time. Um, and I frankly don't remember which one of those I found out from. I had a massive list of um, potential people to work with. I really nerded out on that, trying to find somebody. And between the two of those, Elance and um, Googling around and talking to some um, food science programs, I found, yeah, I found a couple of quality people. Okay. And were they, where were they living? Were they in the U.S. even? Uh, yep, they were in the States. Yeah, the one I worked with was in New York. Um, yeah, he was great. And did you like send things back and forth or did you have to go to New York? or How did, how did that actually work? Sent, sent samples back and forth. We did a lot of, I, have, I can't even remember how many samples, but yeah, lots of packages back and forth. I also was um, doing that, I was combining that with, um, basically it was like first phase was getting eighty, kind of 80% to where I thought the product could be, right? Uh, and that was basically just on my taste buds and my family taste buds. I'd eaten a ton of products like that. I kind of knew roughly how this would compare to the other stuff out there. And then beyond that, really getting it to where I wanted it to be, uh, I went to a hiking festival and I handed out a tons, you know, hundreds of samples to hikers, um, just getting all sorts of feedback. I put on a big green Afro wig and walked around trying to get attention and just handing out samples and, you know, giving them out to anybody um, that would take one and handing out free samples isn't hard. Nobody's going to turn you down. So then, yeah, that was just, all right, is it too sweet, too salty? Um, and kind of iterate, iterate, iterate. And then from there, it was just going back and forth, back and forth and more samples with the guy. So what's actually really cool is it, it sounds funny that you walked around sampling and with a green alpha wig, but I, I've listened to a lot of podcasts on how people started a business and it's almost always the ones that are successful is the founder of it was like, I'm, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes. Right? <laughs> I'll stand on the street corner. I'll dress like this, you know, right. this crazy I'll put guy. On Afro. Yeah. And it's, I think that a big reason why a lot of people in the nomad space fail is because we just don't invest enough of our self into it. You know, when you have a, the thing about a physical business, let's say you opened a, a coffee shop or a restaurant and you're spending 40 grand, you're taking out a loan, you're spending like, you know, hard earned cash and you're physically there, you're going to do whatever it takes to, to follow through and open it up. But if you're opening an online store, you're starting a dropshipping store and you have 14 days of free trial and you're like, oh, well, hit a couple speed bumps, 13 days in, I'm going to cancel this before <laughs> Shopify charges Peace me. Peace out. You know, and then you say, oh, okay, well, I failed. But in reality, most of us, you know, most nomads I've met haven't even really tried. You know, it's it's opening, starting a business isn't that easy. I think we glamorize it sometimes. But these are the type of stories I really like hearing is kind of what you were willing to do. I mean, how many of you guys would be willing to even go to a convention? How many would you would be willing to, <laughs> right. you know, call that many people? You know, like even call suppliers on the phone instead of just emailing people? Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you just got to go for it you know all right so you were passing out samples you you figure out what people actually liked what they didn't like then what i had a very basic site set up and a very basic um, packaging you know um, really just just truly minimum viable product just trying to get something out there Where did you get those made uh, I was, I was doing that. I was doing all of that at my mom's house. This was year one, you know, um, at my mom's house. And this was, um, so I had, you know, so I had a product that I felt, um, pretty good about after getting those, you know, samples, getting the product to her felt like it was pretty good. And I started sending it out to uh, all sorts of bloggers, maybe like 50 to a hundred people I sent out samples to. So you made, you made a website in WordPress or what did you use? Shopify. And Shopify. Okay, cool. Shopify. And then how did you actually design the, the package of the label? Like, did you outsource the logo or did you make that in MS Paint? So I, no, I was, I, uh, the, the logo was cheap, very cheap on, I think Fiverr. Okay. Nice. The, des- the packaging design was, pricier um I, I i don't remember if that was from a recommendation or if i just went on a website or who the graphic design was for that one but it was not i, I did 99 designs later and if i could recommend 99 designs to anybody i highly recommend that the first packaging i did was they didn't give me many options to choose from you know different designs they weren't that different from each other so it's kind of like this very narrow um, window of, of um, you know graphic design options, but yeah, so I kind of had um, the packaging together and a basic site together. So I was handing out sam- or sending out samples, trying to get mm-hmm. um, just more feedback and trying to see is there anybody that's going to really want to buy this stuff. I, I like that, and I think th- that's really cool that you use a lot of the tools that we use to outsource, like basically use templates and <laughs> right. Shopify to, to create a website uh, instead of having to learn how to code using 
you know, Fiverr to make a basic logo to start with, uh, and then using 99designs to get some mock-ups. Yeah, yeah, no <laughs> and doubt. This is this is really cool because now I, I think when people hear, you know, heard your interview on Joe Rogan's podcast, they, they're thinking, okay, this guy's probably with some big, big company. Uh-uh. You know, right? <laughs> he probably has this big team, but you're just some dude sitting in thailand you know you're 29 years old now yeah so you were even well how old are you when this started mm, 25 yeah 26 you and you were basically homeless for six months without showering yeah right. <laughs> just walking through right this trail with your backpack no I, you're right i mean this was yeah this was totally bootstrap man i mean i was really i was reading a lot of books like lean startup and um i think that was a huge lesson learned is starting off testing before spending you know like like just summarizing like don't blow money on things that you think you need to spend money on test to see if this is going to bring in money and then invest more into it you know um so that was kind of the idea like you know test a little bit of sample you know test a little bit of samples before we start going more down that route test a little bit of the site before we start blowing money on the website you know that was kind of the thing test before spending um but that was yeah that was kind of the, the ground zero of getting green belly off I like it. Okay, so then you had packaging, you had some food samples, and then at, at what point do you need to, you know, I don't know, so do you have to get it like FDA approved or like how does that work? Because it's food, right? Yes. You. So I think that was something I, I knew I was, I was running into is I had these samples, you know, that I was making out of my mom's kitchen, but I, I could not start really selling that stuff on a, on a large scale from my parents' kitchen. You know, you need a USDA approved facility to do, um, start shipping across state lines. And this was also kind of like, I knew I was going to need more cash to get this thing rolling. Uh, that was around the time that I said Kickstarter was, you know, Kickstarter had been popular at that point, but, um, it was really popular at that point. I mean, of course it still is, but that was the first time I had really heard about it. And I said, yeah, you know, what the heck this could give me kind of a make or break. You know, if I make some money on this, I'm going to continue. If I don't, then I'm not, you know, and I set a I set a small goal for ten thousand dollars, and that was it. I just said if I can get ten thousand dollars worth of orders, then that can kind of give me enough to get rolling with this, get a little better packaging, get a little better website, try to invest in um, some marketing, that kind of thing. So I spent about maybe two months ish prepping for that Kickstarter, really consuming everything I could on internet marketing and trying to figure out how to get the word out from uh, you know for that Kickstarter campaign. So that was. Ended up launching the Kickstarter campaign in um, March 2015. So how did you get the word out? What was your kind of plan to market it? Uh, those samples helped out a lot. The, that those initial wave of samples that was I mean that was huge. You know, getting getting um, in the hands of I, I don't remember exactly how many I sent out, um, but it was somewhere between 50 and 100. If you're getting those bloggers, I had no way to quantify audience at the time. Um, I didn't know what I was doing. I was sending out to any backpacking. Any person in the backpacking outdoor world that had maybe an audience. But yeah, that helped, you know. So it was and a combination then, of friends and family yeah. and then getting some of those bloggers on board. So did you like email the bloggers and say, hey, we're launching this Kickstarter. Can you let your, your fans know or what? A combination. There were two types. One was just initially when I was getting the product out, you know, saying, hey, here's this product. You know, I'd love to kind of know your thoughts kind of a route. And then there was a second wave, which was hey, I'm, I am launching this Kickstarter. Uh, I love your feedback, any kind of thing. And then, you know, from there, we kind of developed a little bit of a relationship to do a review, spread the word. Um, and so that kind of that kind of mini, I mean, this is a very small network we're talking about now. This isn't like I'm, I'm not getting huge, you know, PR from this stuff. But that was enough, you know, friends and family helped share it. And then getting this kind of small network of, of uh, influencers together. And between the friends and family and that small network, that was able to raise $19,000. Nice. So you almost doubled your initial goal. Right. So, I mean, you know, some people squawk at that $19,000. I thought, you know, Kickstarter campaigns, you know, you see those things going through the roof sometimes. But for me, it was great. You know, um, it, it, it gave me a large enough, a large enough order to go and approach what's called a co-packer. And that's what, that's that person that has that certified facility. And, you know, they can do handle the production for me. They have the capacity, they have the certifications, they know what they're doing, dealing with food. I, you know, obviously I wasn't going to be making this out of my mom's kitchen. And so by doing that $19,000, I had to order now for about 5,000 meals. So now I had a little bit of, you know, here are all those minimum order quantities. If you go and approach one of these big food manufacturing companies, like, 
who's this who's this small fry coming in and trying to get me to partner up you know he doesn't have enough volume to even make it worth our time so yeah that was now i had a five thousand meal order it's kind of like it wasn't huge but it was enough to start talking to some people um so yeah then the cold calling google research went to go finding that co-packer and then get that set up yeah so where where was that first co-packer uh, it's the same one we still use in Kentucky, uh, wow. and, and they're and they're awesome. So, did you have to like drive out there, or how, I did? How did that work? I did. <laughs> yeah, I drove out there. Uh, you know, trained all them. Um, yeah, really. Yeah, I, yeah. I spent the night out there and trained employees for a couple of days and uh, made sure that we all felt good about the situation. And um, it's still going to this day, and they're great. Okay, I love it. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, that TV show with Marcus Lomas. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's, but it's it's like Shark Tank, but with like one business at a time. Mm, mm. You're talking about The Prophet, are you? The Prophet. The Prophet. Love that show. And he is always convincing people to use a coal packer. And I always thought, okay, why don't people just start with one? But now I realize it's because in the beginning, they, they, they can't hit those MOQs, those yeah. minimum orders. Yeah, and even still, my coal packer is still very small. So... You know, if you were, if you were to go to anybody that's making any large stuff, you know, the, I mean, the guys that I the when I was cold calling around, the people I was talking to were saying, you know, we're, we we won't even talk to you unless you can do a million dollar run, and I was just like, dude, we're just we're just way way off here, you know, but yeah, so that that was that was really helpful getting that off my plate from a legal point of view, getting that properly set up, but also just time freeing up. You know, you have to remember like before that if there's anything coming through, I was having to whip that up in my mom's kitchen then I, you know, that night and then ship that stuff out the next morning. Like that was awful. It was a huge time waste, hugely stressful. I'm sure your mom didn't appreciate you <laughs> in her kitchen all day. Yeah, no doubt. So, but that's cool that you had proven the concept. You were, you know, able to fulfill the small, small orders in your mom's kitchen while going through this process i think that's kind of a really smart thing i think a lot of people they just want to jump to the you know to the end result but these are the steps that we we can't really miss right baby steps and keep iterating you know before you take the next big step make sure you're iterating in the right direction okay so then you have this co-packer you actually have product i'm assuming you send out the, the kickstarter orders how do you get it from there to start kind of selling on its own that's a big one. Yeah, that that I guess that you know. So the first phase was getting everything set up, right, which we just covered, and then the next phase was actually trying to get consistent orders, and that has been a lot of different things, man. Um, yeah, I mean, we could talk about tons of different little marketing tactics, but um, it's been a lot. You know, one thing is just being around a while, slowly spreading the word. Other, I've done. I did a lot more PR outreach, um, which was one thing I was going to talk about with you at Nomad. Some was that PR outreach and. Um, reaching out to a lot of, you know, a lot of outlets and trying to get more and more people talking about it, writing about it. So, you know, that was kind of reaching out to people like Fast Company and Bicycling Magazine, Backpacker Magazine, those kind of outlets trying to get some of those gear junkie, those kind of outlets talking about it, which helped. Um, Started writing about, you know, backpacking things and um, getting some content marketing out there. Um, yeah, I did some, you know, some ads here and there. Um, it was really just a lot of throwing a lot of darts and slowly navigating that process and building up, building up that newsletter, did a lot of giveaways and partnerships, um, and slowly just kind of building that, you know, that, that platform. It's yeah. been, a, it's been, a, it's been a long road though. I mean, you know, I think a lot of times you hear people say, how did you, how did your business become so successful? Like, you know, you hear about these overnight successes. Mine was not an overnight success. You know, it's taken me years to really get it to be a, a good business. Yeah, I can see that. And I think a big help for that is you actually have a good product, right? I'm assuming, you know, I, mean, I actually have one yet. <laughs> I, I, I love them. All right. And I mean, Joe Rogan loves them. You know, he takes them on his, on his hunting trips. <laughs> so I'm assuming, you know, it's because it's a good product that is unique, that fills a need and a niche that comes from someone who actually cares about the product. It, that makes it much easier to, to sell. I get a bunch of people, usually like these Amazon FBA sellers who just import some piece of junk from China, <laughs> and they send me an email saying, "Hey, can you uh, can you promote this on your on your podcast or on your blog?" And I'm like, "No, like I, I honestly don't even reply to them." Yeah, because I'm like, "This is I can tell this is a piece of junk, right? And it's not unique. It's something that I can buy on AliExpress or it's something I could just buy anywhere." That's that's a great point, and I'll build off on that with the kind of the marketing side of things. I'm not going to toot my own horn too much by saying that, you know, let um, the product market itself. But if you think about any great product you use, what, I, don't, I don't care if it's physical or, you know, 
think about if you're using any kind of new internet service, you know, maybe you just heard about Airbnb and you're wanting to use it. You're going to tell somebody about it. You know, like those, those good products naturally market themselves. You know, it's like, I think like if you're going to think about a marketing strategy for the long term, like invest in your product, you know, that's going to market itself. Yeah. And it makes it so much easier to get featured in places like Fast Company and, you know, these magazines and, and sites because I guarantee they're not going to, you know, feature, you know, someone's like knockoff, um, specialist. Yeah, spatula. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, like it has to be something unique, right? Like they're not going to waste their time, you know, talking about something that everyone else has already seen or it just exists everywhere. And I think that's what's so nice about having that big beer, beard entry with a food product is they know, like, hey, like this person actually cares about the product. This is something that is, um, you know, obviously not from like AliExpress or something. So when we talk about it, it's something we're like kind of introducing them to people to something kind of cool, right? Like sure. some, some kind of actual, you know, like a, like a genuine product that is made for the readers of Backpacker Magazine or Bicycling Magazine or, you know, any of these sites. For yeah, sure. I like it. And also you, so you developed some credibility by actually publishing a book on the Appalach- Appalachian Trail, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wrote it, uh, this, We'll see, it's two, it's early 2018 now. It was, that was the end of 2016. So just over a year ago, uh, I just, I just wanted to do it. There's no other real reason. And, um, it was, it was like a little bit of marketing for Greenbelly. I said, you know, okay, maybe I'll sell some Greenbelly via this, but it was also just interest, you know. I really, I kind of like the idea of writing a book. I had so much nerdy knowledge on the Appalachian Trail that, you know, I thought I could, I could easily fill up a book from it. And, you know, make some money off the book itself. It just seemed kind of all to make, you know, why not? Yeah, it looks like it's doing well. It has 183, you know, pretty much all five-star reviews. And it's awesome being able to self-publish a book on Amazon now. I, I have my two books on Amazon. Yeah, as you know, it's Amazon is, is great for self-publishing. Yeah. It took out the middleman, you know? And it's another source of completely passive income for you now, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that passive income is it's good stuff. Can I, can, I, can I ask you what, what, how much you're making from the book or how, like how many copies you're selling a month? Is it pretty consistent or is it? Uh, I'd, I'd prefer not to give numbers, but I'll say that I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with it. I'm very happy with yeah. it. So what's awesome? I, I, I'll give my numbers because mine's a lot smaller, I'm sure. Okay. But I'm making like, you know, 100, 150 bucks a month for my books. But what's awesome about it is I wrote those books now like, what, three, four years ago. Yeah, and because they're good books that have good content, still people find it, people read it, they like it, they tell some friends, they write a review, then Amazon sees that people like the book, they you know feature it more, and it's kind of just this um, it's wheel, it's just spinning. Yeah, like yeah, it's like evergreen, man. It just keeps giving. And but if the book sucked, that wheel <laughs> would die. I mean, right. like you know, you might sell some in the beginning, but then it wouldn't last. You know, right. it wouldn't even last six months. And the fact that you've been selling it now for over a year, you know, and people, you know, I'm assuming you're not marketing this super hard or anything. I, no, I'm not. I've got a couple links on the website, but, um, no, I'm not, you know, people are looking for that kind of knowledge, which helps, you know? Yeah. And so that's actually another kind of big tip for anyone listening to this. You know, you don't have to jump straight to even creating a food company. You can just share that knowledge that you have about doing something that took you a lot of time to research yourself i'll i'll if if, uh, while we're on the book topic um i think everybody has something that they know about that's considered to be in the top one percent of the world in that in that niche you know whether that's you know how to cook a you know cook it bake a cake or you know you know about backpacking or you know about digital nomad life or you know how to start uh, anything it is but it's like i would highly recommend looking into writing a book about it because You've got that's your competitive advantage, you know. That's what you know about, and this could be easy passive income too. Um, assuming you know you do, you know, don't just act like it's a it's a walk in the park. You do your homework, you write a good book, you market it as well as you can. Um, but that can be very easy passive income. Yeah, and actually, that was actually one of the topics I talked about at this year's Nomad Summit. Mm. So the videos are going to go on our YouTube site for free coming up uh, as soon as we edit it. It might be a few more weeks or another month or two <laughs> depending on how long it takes but if you just sign up at nomadsummit.com for the email list we'll send you those videos as, as soon as it comes out and i actually use writing a book as an example of a way to just add value 
in a small way that's sustainable because there's so many people now that they're outsourcing you know these Kindle books that are just garbage (laughs) and they're making some sales they're like this works let me just keep doing more and more and and you know what we've had a guest on the show who does really well he's making you know six seven grand a month from doing that but he also has a couple thousand books on Amazon (laughs) versus you know I guarantee if you just wrote a couple good books and you could still outsource all of it, you know, you could right. still gather the information. You don't, you don't have to be, you know, a full-time author for, for the rest of your life, but it's, it's a good way to get in, develop some passive income, but also that credibility in that niche. So you can, you can do other cool things. Yeah. If you can stick with a niche too, you can definitely develop a following around that. Yeah. I like it. So nowadays you're selling, Quite, quite a bit of these or how, how's that working of your yeah no green billy's rocking and rolling um yeah no green billy's been doing really well um yeah last year was a great year for us i'm excited for this year i don't know if i should even say it yet but i know i've talked to you about it i think about doing a new flavor haven't done new flavor Ooh. haven't done new flavor in a while um we've been brainstorming some ideas so right now <laughs> the flavors are cranberry almond dark chocolate banana and peanut apricot yep and those are the three original flavors so it's like uh, it's time to get on that so i'm gonna give some suggestions <laughs> all right I, I think so we had um pretty much we had like thai papaya salad for lunch it was maybe cucumber, <laughs> cucumber but cucumber, cucumber papaya, papaya salad, salad and and roast chicken i yeah. think that'd be good good meal. Right. plus the green fanta yeah green fanta sticky rice <laughs> But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited uh, for this. Actually, what's funny is I want—I really want to try one of these. And I kept bugging you to... I was actually going to message you when you were in the US and be like, hey, maybe back one. Dude, I, I will. And uh, I, I, My sister came to town to visit recently and she brought... She brought like, I don't know, 30 with her. But it's just... The shipping is so darn They're expensive. Heavy. International expense. Yeah, international shipping is so darn expensive. And I just... I, I eat through them fast. I think they were gone in like two weeks, but... Well, actually, so I'm actually wondering, would you, would you have any idea what percentage of your customers are actually eating this on a through hike versus people just like <laughs> eating it at the gym or out of their car? That's, that's a good question. And I don't have enough data on it. I will say, yeah, you're, I think you're right. A lot of people eat them off trail. You know, I, definitely we have a lot of through hiking customers and a lot of backpacking customers outdoors. Um, hunters, cyclists, those kind of guys. But, oh, yeah, I guarantee a lot of people are just chomping down, you know, on the couch. <laughs> no shame. But you know what? I guess there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You know, they're just testing, um, you know, to make sure it's well, I, I, Yeah, I know, I know for sure. I, yeah, we get several emails talking about, you know, I love this is just a, a ready-to-eat meal when I get off work. I don't have to cook, you know. but Yeah. And, and you know, but they're not, they're not cheap, right? <laughs> yeah. they, no, they're not. So for, I guess they're like, if you if you buy a small pack, it's seven dollars and sixty six cents per per meal. per meal, and a meal is just like one package, right? One package, two two fluffy meal bars inside. That's like, I mean, you know what? I think a lot of people are, when they when they see pricing like this, they're like, oh, there's no way I can create a product in that niche because it's going to cost me too much. I mean, there's no way I can, I can compete with Lauer Bar or Cliff Bar for a dollar ninety nine or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think a lot of people just won't start a product because they're afraid of, you know, outpricing themselves and not being able to compete with the big boys. Yeah. Yeah. But obviously people are willing to pay for either quality or for just something that's kind of better suited for, for their needs. True. Yeah, no doubt. And, um, yeah, that, that price point was definitely, I mean, you're right. Yeah. I was intimidated when we first started getting this thing going. It's trying to think of that price point. Um, I, I noticed that a big thing early on though, is when you looked at how much, sheer food quantity we had uh in one meal so we're using three times the ingredients that these people are in, in some of the other um, bars out there so think about like okay like conceptually it's just you're truly eating you're getting more stuff you know with your money um so i think then that was you know just positioning it into into being that that this is a meal versus a snack bar so if you were to say um you know this is a 650 calorie meal then it's like yeah, we need to charge more for that, you know? Yeah. And I honestly used to be so cheap that I would just buy whatever is the cheapest thing, <laughs> right. you know? And yeah, for sure, man. So when it came, you know, like the job for me to start selling online and start doing e-commerce, I thought, man, there's no way people are going to buy these more expensive products, you know? And in my e-commerce store, our cheapest product was 
$199. And then there was like a better version of it for $299 and a better version of it $349 and a better version of it for like $599. And I thought everybody's going to buy the cheapest one. Like there's no, there's no possible way people are going to buy the more expensive ones. But you know, as a marketer, I'm like, okay, what are the benefits of the better one? You know, this one is lighter weight. It's more rigid. It's built better, you know, and people bought it. Right. Like, we sold almost none of the cheap ones and it was insane, you know, and it's one of those things where there's always, there's going to be that market for, for people who want the cheapest thing, no matter what, they don't care. I want the cheapest one. But I realized that people really are, I mean, those aren't the people you want to go after <laughs> because yeah. they're not going to be your loyal customers. They're not going to make you the money. You have to really go after those premium customers that are willing to pay more money for a better product. Yeah. No, yeah. Pricing can get into a big art and science, you know, and trying to figure out where do you fit into the marketplace and carving out your niche for your price point and what benefits you're giving to get to that price point, right? Yeah, I like that. So I'm curious, now that you're back in Thailand, when somebody goes on greenbelly.co and orders, you know, one of these variety packs of uh, 30 meals, are you going to your mom's kitchen and making these and then shipping it out or like how does that actually get fulfilled uh, yeah so the the facility we have in kentucky fulfills it straight from there um so if you yeah if you order now they'll box it up and ship it out tomorrow so yeah i mean it's all on site in kentucky you know there's some there are a handful of employees there that deal with production uh and fulfillment um all that stuff that's crazy yeah it's okay. great so yeah we, we keep in touch with them um frequently and you know make sure everything's running well over there in the states and and then do you have to like source the ingredients and send it to them or are you having them reorder when they run out or how does that work? Both. And that's constantly evolving. Um, sourcing ingredients and it's, it's complicated sourcing all those ingredients. We have uh, over 20 ingredients that we source. All of them have some sort of different process. Some of them are ordered in very large quantities and have to come in semi trucks and some of them are smaller quantities. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically a balance, a mix of, of both of those. Okay. And what about customer service? Like, are you the one answering these emails and the phone, like, or? No, no. I have an, I have an employee who helps with, um, yeah, answering customer service. And yeah, no, I've, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a nice little team that helps out with everything. I love it. I think that's the, that's the dream of, <laughs> you know, a business owner is. Yeah. It's taken a few years though. You know, yeah. I mean, I'm still heavily involved in it. Um, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not totally removed by any means. I'm still heavily involved. A little bit and, and, and really most things, you know, if something really goes wrong with a customer, it'll get pushed up to me. Uh, if there's something that really goes wrong at the facility, I'm going to hear about it. But um, so I think in many ways, I'm still heavily involved. You know, it's not like I'm totally, you know, taking the back, taking the back seat. Okay. But that's cool that you can now do your job from anywhere. Yeah, no, that's great. The location part of it. And the second thing is also just, you know, what, what, do, people, what, do, what do you enjoy doing on a daily basis? You know, and uh, definitely the marketing side was um, much more where I wanted to focus. That's the fun side, the creative side. Um, that's really where I wanted to be putting my focus as opposed to answering customer emails and ordering ingredients and, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. So it's big, big difference than when you're here in Thailand that first time teaching English <laughs> backpacking. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, so I'm curious, have you met many other people, you know, traveling uh, as a digital nomad who do anything even like remotely similar to what you do? Uh, you know, I would have to think about that for a minute. The I know there are a lot of FBA guys, which is gray, you know, because most FBA guys are white labeling a product and they're not doing custom manufacturing. So if you talk about like some sort of custom manufacturing physical product you know there aren't many that i that i that i know of um i do know the manal guys um but i you know i, I don't i don't hang out with them frequently but I, I know that they're um a physical product uh company um that they travel i mean they they're they're mad madmen travelers um but no no i guess i i do know a lot more fba kind of internet marketing um folks you know out here in chiang mai yeah i think on the podcast so far we've had on Michael Coe from uh, episode 178, he was, he created soapberry soap. Like uh, these bars, actually, they're liquid soap made out of something called a soapberry. Hmm. That was an interesting um, episode where he actually, I had him on because I saw him on QVC out of all random things. <laughs> nice. And he was a, a nomad. So I was like, okay, th that'd be interesting to talk about. And I'm friends with uh, the guys from Tree Tribe who are the Joe, okay. Joe yeah, and, yeah. and Sharif and them. Um, and but they started as you know FBA guys white labeling something, and they kind of moved more towards 
customizing Custom, things. Yep. But I think that's that's kind of the the move that people make. I Natural guess, evolution. Yeah. Well, it's like the thing about FBA is just so much easier to test the product, right? If it's going to sell, and then if it does, then you can say, okay, let's let's build a little little moat around this and try exactly. to get a little more custom. So that seems to be a, a more natural evolution to do it like that, you know? Yeah. Um, and I guess in your specific case, this probably wouldn't have been possible if you tried to do all this from Thailand in the first place, right? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I, there's it's such a U.S. focused yeah company that I, I just don't even. I don't know how that would have been because I would have to be shipping every all product to the states from here, and with such small quantities, I think that would have killed me. Yeah, maybe if I was doing it much much larger quantities, it would have been okay. But starting off, no, it just wouldn't have been possible. Okay. Uh, any anything you would have changed, kind of going through this this process of this journey? Uh, I wish I, I wish I could have sped things up. I feel like starting off like at ground zero as an entrepreneur, there's so many things. I mean, as you know, it's just like, <laughs> wow, I used to do this so much slower or less efficient or but i couldn't pinpoint anything specifically i think it's just more like going down that entrepreneurial path and trying to see and, and learning as you go and looking back and saying wow every little thing could have just been done faster or more efficiently but yeah in general the one thing i look back on always is time and just wishing i would to move faster on certain things but i gotta you know granted i, I don't know what i was doing you know i, mean, I can't I can't say i should have done what i didn't know yeah it's true and it sounds like you know you you've learned a lot along on the way and you've somehow become like good at actual like content creation and like the marketing side of it as well that's true yeah it's slow slow evolution <laughs> yeah so does a lot of your traffic come now from people finding cuz i'm looking at your site now and you have a ton of guides and like blog posts about yeah. you know best ultralight backpacking tents yeah, um, we're starting to spit out a ton of content um Anything related, whether if it's gear to a how-to guide, um, I'm wanting to. I'm doubling down on content now. I've got a writer now. Um, think about hiring a couple more writers, just spitting out content. Um, dude, I mean, yeah, there are tons of content marketing opportunities out there. I've thought about doing more, more video stuff um, and talking really more niching down into more backpacking food stuff. But yeah, no, content's good. Content brings in a lot of traffic. Yeah, still some PR. You know, got PR traffic coming in. Still, really throw a lot of darts in a lot of different areas and PR outreach, content, partnerships, giveaways, you know, anything like that. Wanting to do more with Instagram, wanting to do more with social media, <laughs> maybe some ads. I don't know. We're always doing different things, you know. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So, do you do you guys use paid ads at all? Not right now, but I, yeah, I I have dabbled a lot with paid ads in the past. Um, did some with Facebook ads in the past, and eh, it's just I don't know. Haven't do, not doing them now. Maybe okay. soon. Okay. But you know what? Whatever you guys are doing, it, it, it's working. So it's working. That's fine. I, I like it. So big question is, how did you get on Joe Rogan's show? He, I was on this guy named Cody Rich. He, he uh, was kind of a friend of a friend. Um, he reached out to me actually. Yeah, we like I mentioned we did um, a giveaway a while ago that try not to go too far down the rabbit trail. We did a giveaway a long time ago, and it was a successful giveaway. And the actual platform of the giveaway had done a case study on the giveaway that we ran. So then this guy, Cody, finds out about it. Cody then reached out to me to kind of nerd out on, on some kind of marketing stuff. And um, turns out Cody runs a hunting podcast mm. and so um, called The Rich Outdoors. Okay. Um, so Cody and I kind of became friends uh, from The Rich Outdoors and kind of talking about hunting. And he said, do you want to hop on my podcast and talk about backpacking food? Because there's surprisingly a lot of overlap between um backcountry hunt hunters carrying out a lot of gear mm. um prioritizing weight you know trying to stay ultra light and um and then obviously the backpacking community has a similar you know need so he said come out and talk about backpacking food turns out joe rogan listens to his podcast so, so he's um, randomly was listening to this guy's podcast listening to his podcast and then um uh yeah he started just placing some orders and uh did you know did you know that you were selling joe rogan i i did because he was he mentioned it on a few episodes he mentioned it on several episodes i saw like him like literally eating it on the on the show so, oh wow and how did you find out did you just bump into it or somebody tagged you i don't even i don't remember somebody might have like a friend of a friend might have said something like message me i really don't even remember but somehow or another i found out that he had you know so he wasn't on a trail eating this. He was sitting <laughs> sitting in his fucking podcast studio. He's like one of those guys we were talking about saying, I wonder how many people, how many customers are just eating it sitting on their couch. Yeah, just eating it on their podcast. Um, so yeah, he was eating it and um, 
yeah, he'd play some orders. I mean, I, I wanted to respect him as a customer and not invade his privacy and start messaging him and all that. But did it say, like, Joe Rogan, like, you know, 60 bars? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I had, yeah, I had, there's a customer profile on there for sure. So, you know, I I, I debated for a while on, on reaching out or anything. I, I just didn't want to be, like, yeah, I think it's just disrespectful to be messaging your customers. Like, Yeah, and I guess, you know, it, maybe that kind of paid off because the product promoted itself. He... You know, maybe if you had reached out right away and you were like, hey, let me send you some, you know, samples, he might have just ignored it thinking it was, you know, just another another person trying to market something. Sure. But the fact that he found it, he liked the product enough to continue reordering. Sure. And it's, I mean, like that was the best free product placement you could have, you could have gotten. True. I mean, his sponsors, like nobody's listening to his eight minute sponsor <laughs> commercials. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everyone's fast forward through that, but when he's talking about it organically on the show, sure. You know, especially if he's eating it, then sure. that's that's completely different. Yeah. So ultimately, yeah, I just sent him a note and said, um, you know, love your show if you ever want to talk about backpacking anytime and um yeah, just kind of developed from there about coming on the show and it was yeah, just very informal, you know, really nothing I, I would have expected a little bit, you know, just more formality. It's really just a laid back guy saying, do you want to talk on my show? That's it. You okay. know, just like you and I, you know, do you want to come get lunch and yeah. talk on the show? Yeah, let's do it. You know, it's as simple as that. So did you fly out to LA or how did that work? Yeah, no, I flew out to LA and uh, met him in his studio and yeah, just had a meeting time and showed up and got to it. Okay, I like it. Actually, so you're actually not the first guest on uh, Travel Like Boss who's been on jre Ooh. you're actually the third guest now that i think about it who are the other two see i, I don't i don't know if you, if you can actually guess so i don't know if we should maybe, maybe we'll, we'll allow the listeners to kind of think back because i know a lot of listeners have actually listened to all 189 episodes by now so i want you guys to think back for a second on what other two guests besides chris has been on joe rogan and it wasn't me <laughs> was he jenny so the first is Nicholas Gregoriadis, who is my buddy, who's um, Hodrick Gracie's first black belt. He was on the show with uh, the guy from London Real. I don't remember his name. I never met him. Uh, but yeah, Nick used to be the co-host of London Real and good friends with that guy. So they got invited onto the show. And Nick said he got so high <laughs> before the episode started that it it's just like he couldn't talk he just like sat there for three hours like and i actually does, does he look like that in the episode he's just sitting there yeah you know what actually no i i, I do know the guy brian rose met him uh I don't, I don't i don't know if where we hung out we either hung out here or maybe in the u.s or something but I, I actually i do remember hanging out with with brian but i listened to the episode and i was like i was like bro like why didn't you say anything the whole episode <laughs> And he just—he's like, yeah. So paranoid. He's, I was just so fucking high, I just couldn't say wow. anything. And that was—I think that was episode two seventy one of uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Did did you guys drink or, or smoke while, while you were there? I I don't smoke, okay. uh, but he—I mean, I think I think he had offered me drinks. He, he had like his whole—he had like a whole liquor cabinet. Yeah. But no, I, I, I no, I didn't drink or anything out there. I was a pretty—I was a pretty boring. I wish I could have some crazy party story, but no, I don't. But um, yeah, hit, I, I, hit. I got some gin in the corner if you want some. <laughs> Maybe later, Johnny. Yeah. Well, oh, actually, we had a coconut before this. <laughs> that counts, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, and I, I know, yeah, he he gets down on his show, no doubt about it. Okay, and you know, you're hanging out there. Any snacks or anything? I'm, I, was I eating Greenville? I don't know. I know he had a ton of Greenville there. No, man, a co- coffee. We had coffee. Okay. Uh, nothing, nothing cool, man. Yeah. No, I'm not. Like, I wish I could was say something cool. Was it butter coffee or just normal coffee? <laughs> I don't know. I think it was just normal coffee. Okay, so the uh, the second guest we we kind of alluded to it actually. Do you know who it was? Do I know him? Um, you probably heard of him. Let's see what episode it was. It was episode 58 of Travel Like a Boss. It was Dave Asprey? Oh, nice. Yeah, and he. Ooh. Yeah, they, they had an awkward. They had a feud. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it was yeah, it was pretty crazy because um, I don't know what that whole thing was, but I, 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 it's funny you mentioned that before I went on there. Somebody was talking about that that feud that they had. Yeah, which I don't even know if it was a feud. It was just an argument or something. Yeah, I think what it was was 
Joe Rogan had on Dave Asprey because he really liked Bulletproof Coffee, right? And they're talking about it, and Joe, like, basically brought him, like, thousands of customers or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of customers, as, as he does. And I think he had him on the show, like, you know, a couple times, three, four, five times or something. Well, I don't know how many times, but two, at least at least multiple times, at least two or three times. And then, then there was some controversy about, like, the science behind it. And That's what it, yep. And then there were some arguments about Dave not wanting to release the um, the studies, you know, that was kind of uh, backing the claims. And it was the coffee beans. Something with the coffee beans had to do with some sort of way that I, I think it was like bugs and getting on coffee beans. And he had some method that prevented them from doing it or something along those lines. But it was it was very technical. Yeah, it was very technical over my head. Yeah. And I think the big argument was Joe was like dude, just show me the fucking studies. And then Dave's like, I can't show you the studies. And he's like, well, you know, like you can't fucking base your whole argument on why people should buy your beans and not someone else's if you won't show the studies. And I think that's where they had the big blowout. And then like that's, a yeah. fucking month later, Caveman Coffee's out. And they they created, it was uh, Joe Rogan's buddy. I, I forgot who it was. But I remember CavemanCoffee.co became like the new sponsor, the the kind of new. No, I did not know that. Pete so- Fletcher. It was literally like there was a big blowout with Joe Rogan and Dave Asprey, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, like literally within like it felt like weeks, it's like by the way, we have a new coffee <laughs> company called Caveman Coffee. Wow. So I have no idea till this day if. Like spite. if if yeah, if it's out of spite and like Joe and you know and Tate was like, well fuck this you know fuck this guy I'm gonna make my own coffee or they were like fuck we're selling all this coffee for this dude let's, let we should make our own. I would think it would be the former. Yeah, I have no idea, but so like, I don't think Joe needs much money. He's probably just pissed. Yeah, and I can see him just fighting someone. If he's just like <laughs> like fuck you, right? Right, you're being you're being sketchy. Let's. I don't know. So I mean, till this day, I have no idea what what happened. But yeah, the interview I had with uh with Dave Asprey was actually really good. But it was crazy because as soon as we stopped recording, he was like re- super relaxed, and we just had this chat for like another hour. And I wish I could have recorded that. Mm. And what it was is he told me that like he he was so he had to, he, you know he had to be so professional, had his guard up because he had all these um you know all these kind of gotcha interviews or kind of like you know yeah. jumping on him and it he sucks. was and he's like I, he's like yeah i don't really know you that well I, I met him once um in san francisco at a at a friend's birthday party but besides from that you know he's like i don't know if you're gonna try to gotcha me <laughs> and so it wasn't until Guard, after guards up yeah it wasn't until after the episode that we had like such a good talk you know and he's a smart guy I asked him should have just left it running yeah but you know what? <laughs> maybe i'll do that with you <laughs> I'm getting out. Yeah. By the way, this is going to be a four-hour episode because we're taking down Joe Rogan's episode. <laughs> we're going to we're gonna compete for the longest fucking podcast without taking a piss break ever. Yeah. Three hours plus, right? Yeah. It's insane that he does that. Yeah. But what's funny no is... No pee breaks. When I, the first podcast I ever listened to was Joe Rogan's. I didn't even know there was other podcasts. I thought it was just his. <laughs> And I was training Muay Thai here in Chiang Mai, in a place called uh, Hangdong, which is like 40 minutes down out, out of the city. And there was nobody to talk to. I was training a bunch of Thai guys, a couple like British guys that didn't talk very much. And Joe Rogan was my only friend. Every day I would listen to a new episode and he was like my only connection with wow. the Western world. Wow. Yeah. So... You know, Joe, if you listen to this, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> thanks, thanks for being my friend. Yeah, but I want. I think a lot of people that I've met now, who have either messaged me or come up to me and said, you know, Johnny, like I was working in a small town in the U.S. in a cubicle. Nobody understood my my passion for wanting to start a business or to travel or to be a nomad. And you're my only friend, dude. I've I've, I've either read people say that on your blog. But I've definitely heard that. Yeah, so I appreciate that. I've also read people saying, fuck this dude. <laughs> stop stop telling everyone to go to Chiang Mai. It's getting too crowded. Haters going to hate. Yeah, but you know what? 
fuck them. It's <laughs> it's you guys are still listening an, an hour and eight minutes in that I care about. So appreciate that. Uh, so actually really good, uh, exciting announcement is our first official speaker for 2019. <laughs> we just decided over roast chicken over lunch. Chris Cage. Yeah, buddy. So hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll no family emergencies next year. Yeah, knock on wood. Uh, but yeah, I know a lot of people were excited to hear you speak this year. Definitely, I'm going to put you on the lineup for 2019. If you guys want to get your tickets, we're actually selling pre-sale tickets for 52% off. So you can save a bunch of money. Dang. But also, most importantly, lock yourself in. So then you have mentally, you're like, okay, I'm going to be in Chiang Mai next January. So go to nomadsummit.com. Click on get tickets or just go to nomadsummit.com slash tickets. You can get your ticket for 2019. You can meet Chris in person. What's up? You can shake his hand. You can get him to sign your green belly meals. <laughs> bring some. Fist pump. Yeah. High five. And, but yeah, seriously, I, th- I think it'd be fun. And I think, you know, as cool as his story was this year on how he's gotten to this point, I think by next year, it's going to be even more powerful. Drum roll. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, seriously, cause you're working on all, all, all sorts of marketing. Yeah. So what are some of your goals for this year, like business-wise? I've got a lot, man. Uh, and frankly, I've, uh, I've been balancing kind of how to how to approach goals. Um, yeah, I've heard so many different approaches on, on doing goal assessments every three months. Um, right now, I feel like I'm doing it every week. It's changing all the time. I think the one I've been I've been teetering a lot with, um, other other than the stuff I'm just trying to get behind me, like I'm working on taxes and so much crap right now that it just feels like noise. Um, but the real proactive stuff is the new flavor. I think is going to be the next the next thing. And then after that, I've got some stuff that I'm teetering on as well, but nothing nothing really in stone, man. I kind of operate you know within three three month cycles. But yeah, as I mentioned, I'd like to do new flavor. Okay, I'm excited about that. See how that turns out. But also, I'm willing to bet that. A year from now, you're gonna figure out all new sorts of marketing channels. You're gonna hey man, test. fingers crossed. Yeah, and I think that's gonna be really exciting for people is to kind of find out how do you take a company that you know you've really established to really the next level while being location independent. But we'll see. We'll, we'll see what the topic ends up being. I think you know whatever is closest to your heart at the time. I think people will benefit from. But I would love to see all of you guys out here. So get your tickets, nomadsummit.com. And get your green belly meals for that 30-hour plane ride, <laughs> greenbelly.co. Appreciate it, Johnny. Thanks a lot, man. It was fun. Yeah, I appreciate you. And I also appreciate all of you guys for listening, as well as sharing this podcast, telling your friends about it, and all the five-star reviews you've left of this show. You guys are the reason why we're able to get awesome guests like Chris on the show, not just because... Uh, he happens to live in Chiang Mai and <laughs> happen to be here too. Uh, but seriously, you got, you guys are the reason why we continue doing the show every single week. This week, I would like to say a big thank you to Allie Dixon. She left reviews and said, Five stars. Johnny, you're such an inspiration to me. I started listening to your podcast from the first episode in October, and now I'm on episode 115 and loving every minute of it. I'm a real estate agent in Oregon, and I'm ready to become location-dependent and travel. So... Hopefully, we'll see you out here somewhere in the world, Ali, maybe at the 2019 Nomad Summit, as well as everyone else listening. That's it. That's a wrap. Greenbellymeals.co. Get yourself a variety pack. Tell your friends. <laughs> Rock and roll. <laughs> Greenbelly.co. Greenbelly.co. All right. See you guys all next week. Right. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.